It's very, very easy to follow a permanent line. We've laid those in. We put all the gold line in the caves in 1989 after that fatality that happened 2,200 foot back. I, uh, I came up with the idea, presented it to the CDS, and now it's an, you know, an international thing. But when you have students follow a permanent line out, a gold line, a four millimeter Kermel strong line, zero visibility, there's no challenge. Have them lay their own line through a 200-foot section of cave that doesn't have any line in it and tell them to follow the line out that they put in. That is a whole different thing. It's episode 79 of Dive in the Podcast with special guest Lamar Hires. Dive in the Podcast is a weekly all-about diving podcast for everyone. Whether you explore the oceans as a snorkeler, scuba diver, free diver, or tech diver, Dive In has something for you. The show is filled with diving news, feature interviews with guests from around the world, interesting dive topics, and ocean advocacy. Visit DiveInPod.com to find out more about the show, our past guests, and our Patreon. Hi, everybody. I'm Justin. I'm Amit. And today on DecoStop, we're going to talk about the five-minute neurological exam. I'm Nick, and we're the hosts of Dive in the Podcast. Before we start today's episode, we'd like to thank our listeners. Thanks for tuning in every week. Your support encourages us to keep going and make a bigger and better podcast. So last week, we had part one of Lamar Hire's interview. This week, coming up in a few minutes, we have part two of Lamar Hire's interview. We got lots of great feedback. Oliver, one of our Patreons, he was said that... Uh, the episode was awesome. Both the interviews and the dry suit leak test segment. He was super happy with both. Thanks, Oliver. Shout out to you. Thanks for being a Patreon, a patron. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, being a patron on Patreon, he gets to listen to ad free episodes. So uh, yeah, that's cool for him. And I'm excited to get back to this interview with Lamar Hires after a week away. What about you guys? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm stoked for this. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah. Uh, he's a legend in the dive industry and the fact that we get to do a, a two-part spread with him fantastic looking forward to it yeah definitely there's there's a lot of content in there um you know like how did they come up with a seven foot hose and mm-hmm. all sorts of fun things you know what why was that the standard and why this became to be and and um you know what's really interesting is you know you, you do a, a course in diving and there's always a little bit of history about the the specialty of the course you're doing but it's mm-hmm. usually like, you know, two or three paragraphs. Uh, if you're lucky, it's like a double space page. Yeah. You don't hear the stories. You, you don't, you don't, you can't like a lot of this stuff is almost never documented or, or hard to find. Or if it was, it's in a, in a print that's, you know, no longer available or not available on the internet. So, you know, yeah. I think one of the cool things is, I guess, with the podcast is documenting some of these things and hearing all these cool stories. Absolutely. As, as we are aware, our uh, podcast is, uh, documented and recorded and backed up in the u.s national library of congress for uh, safekeeping <laughs> so we'll be there for future generations to not, enjoy not the canadian archives i'm disappointed justin well yeah, you know i'm american so american. first we get dibs there so that's right well what do you say guys we dive in and get back to lamar hires welcome back to dive in the podcast we're speaking with lamar hires Welcome back, Lamar. So uh, you've entered you. some pretty unexplored caves and had the opportunity as well in doing so to link different cave systems together. Tell us a bit about what that work looked like. <laughs> um, some of it, well, the the one the one we linked together in, in 89, Telford and Lauraville, uh, 
the most the most interesting and fun part about it was Woody Jasper, who I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, one of my dive buddies and exploration buddies. He uh, was exploring Telford with me. We I had already uh, resurveyed everything Sheck had done, mm-hmm. and you know was pretty happy with the fact our maps lined up pretty much, you know, pretty close together. And Woody and I were pushing it on beyond that. And we had added about another thousand feet beyond what Sheck had done. All side mount. Where a lot of what Sheck did was, well, all, everything Sheck did was back mount. But what we were pushing was now side mount. And I didn't know it at the time. But Woody was also exploring Louisville, what we connected it to with Tom Morris. Hmm. And they had pushed into some stuff. And so I'm surveying it and I've, I'm using a mapping program called SMAPS at the time. And I've got a topo overlay on them and I'm telling Woody, I think it's headed toward Louisville, but I don't have anything on Louisville. And Woody, Woody broke down one night and said, I can't handle this anymore. He said, cause he's, he's exploring with me and we're keeping it quiet. He's exploring with Tom and keeping it quiet. Not no, and, and Tom and I don't know that Woody's in the middle and knows that we are headed <laughs> to the same point. <laughs> so finally, um, it, we, we, uh, Woody just brings us all together and Tom gives me his data and I punch it in and we're only 90 feet apart. Wow. Uh, but it's one of those where we've already pushed past it. We're about 400 foot past that, that past that connection area. And the connection area on the Louisville side is what we call the second maze. And um, so Tom really didn't know which way to go in it because there are all these little tunnels going different directions. And some of them loop back on each other or they just dead in. So when I had everything uh, surveyed, like Tom, we're 90 feet apart and we've, we've got to go north by northwest to make the connection. So... Woody and uh, Tom and I go in and uh, to the Louisville side, which I hadn't been in there for more than a thousand feet. Uh, and now I'm fixing to go to the end of the line at 2,600 feet through all side mount passes, what we call mazes where lines are teed and such. And mm-hmm. back then you teed lines, you didn't make jumps. That's what, that's what scared people out of them. So they wouldn't continue to go look around. So everything was teed. Mm. And, uh, so we went back in there and I got to go first through Woody's, what we call Woody's Wallow. Only the first man got to see anything. The other two were in zero visibility for mm. a 400 foot stretch. And uh, so we got through Woody's Wallow and then uh, into the second maze. And uh, I went to the end of the line and held up my, pulled out my compass and came north by northwest, no matter what it looks like. Mm. 90 feet later, I popped into the tunnel on the Telford line that Woody and I had been laying. No. Wow. <laughs> and connected it. Yeah. We connected it. So that was a, a righteous dive that night we did. And then, uh, um, so we connected it up. And then the following weekend, uh, we did the swim through from Lorville to Telford. One wow. or the other. So we, 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 we set a short-lived world record of a 7,600-foot side mount traverse. And they took it away from us at Wookie Hole shortly after that. We didn't even know we'd set a record. <laughs> but but uh, the UK sometimes were quick to let us know they took it back. <laughs> what, what motivates you to, to push through those? Is it just the, 
is it just the exploration or what, what's, what's it's, it's the exploration. It's the thrill, you know, being the first man to walk on the moon and the mm-hmm. first man in a cave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've mapped a bunch of places in Florida, a bunch of systems. What is it that, that you're most, uh, uh most proud of, or is it, would you say another? No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to explore, you know, anywhere in the world, you know, mm-hmm. I've done a little bit in Mexico, uh, last few years ago when I was in Mexico, my son got to see me in full form. He had never actually seen me lay in line and exploring. Oh, yeah. And with Robbie, uh, we, Robbie took us to this whole part of the exploration he was doing over there. And he's like, Lamar, the, the reel's laying there at the end and there's a thousand, thousand foot of line on it, but I'm not sure which way to go. And uh, I pushed through about 400 foot of some gnarly stuff and it broke open. And uh, so we we basically dumped the reel, nice. and it was still going. And went back and continued exploring it, but it was pretty gnarly. And and my son was like, "Dad, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't turning around because I could, I could tell it was still going." You know, in Mexico, it's not as easy as Florida because you mm-hmm. don't have flow. Yeah, Florida, you got flow. You got something that's telling you you're going the right way as long as the tunnel will let you go the right way. Mm-hmm. What, what's that like diving with your son? Like through those kind of, you know, oh, expiration it's, conditions. It's, it's cool. He's, he's a very good cave diver, mm-hmm. very good communications. He's an excellent instructor. He's working on his cave instructor stuff now, but mm-hmm. uh, he's a very, very, very good instructor, uh, rebreather instructor. And also I enjoy diving with him. I like, I like him to see what I get my, what I get thrilled doing. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, super cool to share. Yeah. And I've taken him into just about all the places I've explored here in Florida. In some ways he gets tired of hearing the stories. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. The, the, that thing that only the, only your kid can say, dad, oh, I've heard this story enough. Yeah. I've heard this one again. <laughs> has, has he taken you somewhere you haven't been? No, 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 no. Now we've gone on some trips that, uh, that, you know, diving trips that I wouldn't mm. have actually put that on my list unless he had set it up. And he did, you know, like going to Bonaire for the first time, then we went to St. Croix and, and the Bahamas, especially I wanted to go to the Bahamas, but I just never took the time to do it. Mm-hmm. But he got in touch with uh, Brian uh, and everything and set everything up for us to go over there. Mm. So we had a, a few days with Brian Cook over there. That was a lot of fun. Nice, Very nice. cool. Yeah. You're, you're also uh, passionate about, the safety and recovery rescue diving side of things. Um, why is that? Um, well, in some ways it's because I'm selfish. I want to keep the sites open. Mm-hmm. If, if people die and divers die trying to recover their bodies, then they'll be closed. We won't have any more cave diving. Uh, we started all, Henry Nicholson started all this and uh, I was on, I was part of it from the beginning because I'd already done uh, five recoveries when uh, Henry had started IUCR. Yeah, so I'd been a big part of it because I lived in the area. Mm-hmm. And so our biggest fear was somebody dying and then somebody attempting to do the recovery would also perish because they didn't have the training or the knowledge or just the, you know, I don't want to say the guts to do it, but just the, the right mindset to know what you're fixing to get into. And uh, so I, I do it to make sure that we don't lose access to sites because something 
you know, we compound a, a prop, we compound the problem by having somebody else die. And we've come close a couple of times. Uh, some of the, that's one of the things like in, in the eighties uh, and nineties, the recoveries for the most part were fairly easy. Uh, most of them, 90% of them were all open water divers. So, mm-hmm. you know, never more than a couple hundred feet away from the entrance. The longest one we ever did uh, uh, in 1989 was uh, one at Orange Grove. That was 2,600 feet entrance. Okay. That was 20, excuse me, 2,200 feet entrance. That was the longest recovery uh, to get somebody from the, uh, get a body out uh, to date. And then um, in the early 2000s, uh, we had one at uh, uh, Devil's Ear that was uh, 4,000 feet from the entrance. Wow. That we had to pull out. And since then, we had the one over in Plora, uh, the long one there. And then we had the, another one over at Devil's Ear that taxed us at about 6,000 feet. Now, so, you know, today it's even more important that, uh, that we have the right people, trained people with the right mindset to go in and not endanger themselves when they're trying to, to do a recovery. Mm. Was, was there a particular cave? Uh, rescue or recovery that sort of informed your thinking on how to conduct such missions? Well, actually, the the one at Orange Grove in 89 was the one where we started actually putting something together uh, because that's when we realized we'd have to start dealing with actually, you know, uh, long-distance recoveries were taking, bringing out cave divers. It wasn't just open water divers anymore. So it was, it was that thought process behind that one having to do a body tow for 2,600 feet out. I mean, 2,200 feet out. That was the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that kind of shaped how we uh, teach people to tow and everything. But it's like anything, it's constantly evolving. Uh, back then, you didn't take pictures or anything because not everybody had a camera. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just wasn't there. Today, uh, no recovery is done without having a GoPro. Mm-hmm. You document before you even touch the body. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, all this is part of what we do whenever we hold workshops. All, we always have law enforcement there to make sure we aren't missing something as into what they want done. Um, and er- earlier on in, in the interview, you mentioned sort of an initial close call when, when you sort of first got into cave diving. I was an open water diver in a cave. That's okay. You're right. There's a difference. Have you had any close calls since that, that have stood out to you as, as your own learning experiences? <laughs> um, I, I've, had, I've had a few of them. Yeah, I've had a few of them. Those, those are some, uh, they're still vivid stories in my mind as into what happened. Uh, some of them, when you say close call, I haven't had, you know, since I make gear, I'm also a crash test dummy. Mm-hmm. So I've had more close calls <laughs> testing gear than most people would even dream about or have nightmares about. Okay. But those, those don't really bother me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> those are costs to do in business. Yeah. You know, I've, I've got somebody there with me, but, but couple of my more memorable uh, excursions, uh, so to speak, uh, was uh, Woody and I were diving a place on the Santa Fe River called Creature Sink. Side mount, very shallow. You enter the water by dropping to your knees and laying on your belly. And then you crawl in. 
and you're you're underwater at that point. And we only went in about uh, I want to say fifteen hundred feet, but it was ninety. It was a ninety minute exit over fifteen hundred feet and zero visibility. Small, couldn't see anything. Chocolate milk. Now that was after spending twenty minutes in the back of the cave. Uh, moving rocks around because Woody thought it kept going. So we, we stirred up visibility. I'm trying to keep it from filling in behind him as we get the silt, as we just stir up more and more silt. It was the most agonizing exit I'd ever done cave. 90 minutes and zero visibility. It's like, couldn't read my gauges. It didn't matter. <laughs> I was on my way out. Either I had enough air or I didn't. <laughs> you know, and more important that what the funny thing about that whole story is I get home that night and my wife goes, how was the dive? And I go, oh, it was good. It was good. We had a good, we had a good dive. Didn't lay any line, but it was a good dive. And that night I'm reliving the dive in my sleep. And uh, my wife screams at me. What are you doing? Well, I had backed off the foot of the bed, taking the blankets with me and everything. Uh, and when I woke up, all I could say was, I got out. You know, I was going to ask you, and I mean, you kind of said it there, but I was going to ask you, <laughs> at what point do you tell your, you know, your family? Because those are, are pretty significant events. Like, at what point do you tell your family? And, uh, you know, how do they react to that, knowing that you're not only for you, that you, it's happened, but that you're yeah. going to go again? She, she ignores me now. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't tell her that stuff anymore. Right. You know, mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's equipment related or whatever, she knows something because I'm working on it. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. But those things like that, if it's, it, you know, I'll, I'll let her know if there's something serious, but usually it's not. But, you know, but uh, the, uh, the other time. And this, this, this is probably one of the most serious things that ever happened, and, but also the most fun. You asked about Wes. Mm -hmm. And so this is a story. This is Bluebird Springs down at the bottom of Ellison's Cave up in uh, Lafayette, Georgia. It's, uh, Woody and I had uh, gone there one, one fall during tag and dove the, dove the spring. And it was a 300-foot swim to the restriction uh, at the back of the spring. And um, we did it because uh, Martin Farr had been there, you know, and darkness back. And he's, he's a friend of mine. And uh, he had written that uh, the cave pinches out and doesn't go anywhere. Well, Woody and I are like, we can't let, you know, a Brit tell us a cave in our backyard <laughs> isn't going. <laughs> so Woody and I went there, uh, and the water was 60 degrees. We went there and went to the restriction and with a tool, what he called go for. And we chipped away at a rock. So we got it, made it big enough that tanks off, everything off, pushing ahead of you, we could get through. So it was an eight foot long squeeze, almost 10 foot. It was more over a body's length. With fins, because you couldn't have your fins. Your fins were not showing when you had your face, your head out the other side of the restriction. Hmm. And we surfaced in a pool. Uh, and we were now in the dry cave portion of the bottom of Ellison's cave. Well, that got all the dry cavers excited, because if 
they could physically connect Bluebird Spring to the lowest uh, level that they knew of in the cave, it would take it from the fourth deepest pit east of the Mississippi to the deepest pit east of the Mississippi. So they were very excited. So we had a big crew where they were going in from the top side and they were going to put dye in. And then we were going in from the bottom side to see if we couldn't push uh, through the end or at least see the dye coming through to, to give them an idea of, of how much rock was in between the lower portion and the upper portion. Well, Woody and I are the only two that had been back there. But when this was going on, uh, Wes joined us, and then along with three other guys, Luis Manoyo, Jeff Stillo, and uh, Paul Smith. So we went in as two teams, uh, Woody, Wes, and me, and then Paul, Luis, and uh, uh, Jeff. Well, no one had been in there before except for me and Woody. And, you know, you, you start talking about standards and gear and, and everything else. Uh, the water was kind of cloudy that day. So since nobody knew where the line started, even though it was only a few feet inside, hmm. I ran the reel in from tied off to the tree and ran it in. Well, that reel was my safety reel. So I had no other line with me. Hmm. I didn't think about it because it was only a 300 foot swim. And uh, so I ran it in, went in, and then the rest of the guys came in and we explored, waited for the die and didn't see it coming through. Uh, Jeff and Paul and uh, Luis left ahead of us. Now we're doing all this with a single 72 because it's only it's shallow and it's only 300 foot mm -hmm. and one more tank is just you weren't going to get through the restriction if you were having to drag a second tank. Wow. So we <laughs> logistics. <laughs> so yeah. we uh, so um, we uh, they go back to the beach first and they get suited up and they head out through the sump. As we get back, as Woody and uh, Wes and I get back to the beach, uh, we can see the last fin break the water as they're leaving. Hmm. And I'm looking at the line going, that line looks awfully limp. That line does not look right. Okay. Hmm. And uh, so and the water's all cloudy now because of having six people through it and such. And, and Woody, on our, on our way in, he had decided to, after we got through the restriction, to go check out what might be another lead out to the spring, another way around the restriction. And it didn't go anywhere, but he left the line tied to the main line that we had. So those guys, when they were coming out, um, um, Luis went out first, and then Jeff, who broke the line in the restriction. Paul was behind him, now without a line. And because of the restriction was so tight and the Vados uh, rock, was, it was cut by water. It was awfully sharp. It literally cut the pack off of his back, off of his side, as he was trying to squeeze through. But he, he, he made it. He, he, found, he found the loose line and mm. went out. Okay. So the three of them have made it out. Um, and when they get to the surface, they're yelling at each other. Jeff broke the line. He didn't repair it. Left Paul there stranded. In the meantime, Woody and Wes and I are still back in the cave, you know, in the, on the beach, getting, getting kitted up so we could go out. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so, um, so we're getting ready to go in. And so I go first, and I get into the restriction to find loose line. 
Okay. I can keep my hand on the right-hand wall and probably find my way out. So I reach back for my reel. That's not there. I left it at the entrance. I had no line. So I had to back out. I backed out and got uh, caught up in the line Woody had tied in. Hmm. I'd been gone long enough that they thought I was through the restriction. Woody comes down, runs into me, gets me unentangled, he surface. And then I tell Woody the line's broke. So he's like, I'll go in and fix it. So Woody goes down and I said, the viz is crap by now. So Woody goes down and uh, instead of going into the restriction, he follows the line he laid on the previous dive. So he disappears. I see his bubbles. He comes back. And we're like, okay, Wes, it's up to you. Now, this is Wes's first trip in there. And because I got 1,100 pounds of gas left in my 72, that's it. Woody's got about 11 to 1,200 pounds left in his. It's like, Wes, you need, to, you need to get this done, but then you have to turn around and come back and tell us how to get out. And it's like, well, then... And it's like we started laughing. And it's like, well, you know, they come rescue us. Well, no, we're the guys they call when this shit happens. <laughs> so who are they going to call to come get us? <laughs> so, um, so Wes, he starts out with the reel. I mean, he starts out knowing he's got to lay some line to get out through the restriction. So in the meantime, the three guys on the surface, you know, they've gotten all their stuff together. And Luis is like, uh, oh, I got to go back in and fix the line. Those guys don't know what's happened. We got to go in and fix the line before they come through because they didn't know how close behind them, behind them we were. So in the meantime, we're sending Wes back and Wes comes, he finds the line, he fixes it. And he comes back to us to let us know. And he surfaces as one of those slow movie pr- surfaces where his mask comes halfway out of the water and he is holding a pack in his hand. We're like, oh, my God, mm-hmm. lines broke. You've got a pack, which one of our buddies died. And then after that realization, it's like, wait a minute. If he's dead, he's blocking our exit. We're screwed either way because wow. it's too small to get around him. Mm-hmm. We're like, okay, if we find him, we got to drag him to that one little side tunnel and push him in there so we can get by him. But we have barely enough gas to get out, let alone do anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that's on our mind as we're heading out. Wes starts out. He's got that on his mind, too. So he gets through the restriction, his hands on the rock to to pull himself out of the restriction. And Luis, in the meantime, knows that the line is broken. He's going to go back in and fix it. So as Wes is coming out looking for a body, Luis sees Wes's hand on the rock and grabs it. Wes freaks out, pulls his hand back. Luis is like, oh, they're alive. And he turns around and exits. So Wes is exiting, wondering what grabbed him. <laughs> Since no one is there, there's no body, no anything. You know, he's, he's exiting going, you know, he's scared to death as to what he's going to run into. Woody and I are exiting, waiting for the pileup to be stuck because Wes ran into the body and we couldn't get out. So, uh, but we all made it out where, you know, at the same time, that was probably the most intense cave dive I ever had because we had time to actually take a break from it, discuss it, scare yeah. ourselves to death, and then proceed on. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, 
nuts. Um, <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still absorbing that. <laughs> I'm just imagining my hand going through it, opening, not seeing anything, feeling something. Oh my god, that's done right there. I don't think I'm cut out for this stuff. Um, <laughs> I I could change gears a tiny bit, but I'm just thinking about all this stuff you're saying here and and what we've been talking about with safety and construction and everything. Um, what what do you think somebody should look for in a uh, in a qualified cave instructor? A good instructor should be he should be diving and not just teaching. Okay, they need they need to have a resume that includes them doing some recreational cave diving where they are pushing themselves in their own limits. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, they they need to you know have gone somewhere and done something that challenges themselves. Okay. The instructor who just teaches, you know, to me, he's lost his edge. And hmm. if anybody wants to challenge me on that, I'm more than happy to take him diving. <laughs> I'm not challenging you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll accept that answer. <laughs> and so I guess, what, you know, when you put that out there, though, like, uh, and, I, and I agree with you, obviously, you want to have someone that's going there. But like you had mentioned that the... I guess the the procedures, some of the technology has changed. Some of the procedures change. Um, is you know, is there such a thing as that you can you can become an instructor that's kind of just stagnant and because or because you're doing the yeah. same dives all the time that you don't progress exactly. with what's going on? Yeah, yeah. If if your if your routine becomes I teach all the time and you teach at the same sites all mm-hmm. the time, you get into a routine that that creates that you know you become very stagnant. You've got to challenge yourself, you know, and if that is taking students that are now on pleasure dives that are not just in your usual place, like, oh, I've never been here before. Let's go check it out. You know, but you need to challenge yourself. I mean, that's I've always challenged myself. And I work with a lot of instructors and I give them different ideas and different ways to do some of the drills to make them more exciting for the students. You know, to me, the best drills are the ones that are being done where the students didn't know they were drilled till <laughs> you got through with the dive. And then you told them, well, we did this and this, so we can check those boxes. <laughs> oh, that's what we were doing there? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like to take them into the places where, you know, there's always the zero visibility. You know, follow the line in zero visibility. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very, very easy to follow a permanent line. Mm. We've laid those in. We put all the gold line in the caves in 1989 after that fatality that happened 2,200 foot back. I, uh, I came up with the idea, presented it to the CDS, and now it's an, you know, an international thing. But when you have students follow a permanent line out, a gold line, a four millimeter Kermal strong line, zero visibility, that's no challenge. Right. Have them lay their own line through a 200-foot section of cave that doesn't have any line in it and tell them to follow the line out that they put in. Mm. That is a whole different thing. Mm. That is what we had to do when we were exploring back in the 80s. <laughs> you know, you, did, you, you, you followed your own line out in zero visibility. It wasn't something that's scary. You know, it wasn't something that somebody put in and hundreds of divers had followed. We might have put it in two dives ago. And now because we pushed a little bit further back, we're following it out in zero visibility and realize there's a couple of mine traps that we might need to address. Yeah, that's, that's something else. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, really, it's just, it's just uh, I don't even know what to say when you're when you're hearing that, right? So I guess you know when you when you come to that, do you think then? Uh, obviously, we can't compare uh, the diving of of say like exploration to what you've said is uh, you know like the recreational cave diver. Uh, but would you suggest that with the current standards, we're training people well enough to be able to do the things that we're asking them to do? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because most of the people are going to places where, you know, I mean, if you're following a line that's already there and you got a map to look at, mm-hmm. people are being trained well enough to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's when you get off of that. But what are you looking for? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or you go into a place with no flow and the rest of the cave's got flow. Mm-hmm. You have an average mean depth of about 60 feet here and you have a pit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, wow, how am I going to tie off a line here? I'm going through a very low, muddy area and there's no place to tie off. Mm-hmm. There's no way to position the line. Right. That's where the big questions come in. We start talking about that. And, and that's, that's just missing because it's lack of opportunity. Right. When we opened up uh, Bonnet Springs uh, years ago, uh, we had explored Bonnet, uh, Wes, Woody, Mark Long, and myself. We explored all that, and we took uh, we took a few. We had a few good adventures in there. Uh, and uh, but when we uh, when the park took it over and said, you know, let's open it up for diving, I won't ever forget the first weekend it was open. Um, Joe McGrath was a park ranger there, and it's like, yeah, Joe, these these, this is, these are some good guys, Joe. There, they know what they're doing. Let them go. You know, they can dive Bonnet. I've told them how to get in there. And they come out on Saturday and they are scared to death because the line starts in what we call the second cavern. And so when they ran their line from the first cavern to the second cavern, uh, they went into a major line trap. Hmm. They didn't think about a secondary tie off to avoid it because it was a recreational cave. And so that happened on Saturday, Sunday, the team that went in uh, didn't get in caught that line trap. But when they got into what we call the Z-Bend Passage, and it's a series of six T's over a 200-foot section, they went the wrong way a few times, had to back out, scared themselves. So I get a call from Joe that afternoon, Sunday. Lamar, we're going we're gonna to shut down Bonnet because uh, we've already had two, we've had two teams in there, and both of them came out with horror stories. Ah, oh, Joe, Joe, I, don't do that. I'll take care of it tomorrow. <laughs> so... Monday, Dan Lenz and I go in there. I run the line out to the first cavern, uh, route it as to avoid the line trap, take all the tees out, all the way back to 2,000 foot, and now everybody has an enjoyable dive in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess just the difference between experience, right, and, and what you need to be able to do yeah. to make them passable yeah. caves and what have mm. you. So. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the whole mindset. Like the guys who got caught up in that first area in the Z-Bend, they're like, well, we're following the main line, Lamar. And I'm like, what do you mean following the main line? We were following the main line, not the lines tied into it. And I'm like, uh, wait a minute. Don't you know how exploration works? Mm-hmm. Uh, if this way doesn't go, when you come back on the next dive, you tie in and go another way. You should have been following the lines that were tied in because that was the route we found to get through that passage. Not side tunnels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's, that's how exploration works. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I picked up on something really interesting that you said, you know, like, um, and you mentioned this before about keeping the sites open, right? So there must have been a time when when these caves became more regulated and, and more controlled, right? And, and 
you work yes. really hard to keep that open. How how has that changed sort of, you know, perceived or how, how did that come about? Well, in, in, the, in the early days, the problem was that, the, you know, it was basically the Wild Wild West. You know, we didn't have state parks or anything like that. So you could call the Peacock, pull up to it and park right there and camp, whatever you wanted to do. Hmm. Um, and that was when it was really scary. People were diving with no regulation whatsoever. And we we had to, our concern was, you know, police divers, law enforcement, who were trained to go in you know, the river and look for guns and bodies. We're not trained for overhead. And we were so afraid that they were going to die. And the, and the, de- and the, the sheriff would tell us, it's like, I'm not going to let my boys go in there. I'll close them before I send one of my boys in there. So it was either we do it or the sites were going to be closed because if there's a body in there, they, they can't let people go in. And they were not going to send deputies in. Now, when the state took it over, now we could now they could post signs, put regulations in, and uh, state law enforcement come in and arrest somebody if they're not following the rules. Mm-hmm. So it became more controlled. But back then, it was all about law enforcement not wanting to send anybody in. And our biggest concern was that a deputy who had some open water training would go in there and perish. Mm. That would have shut everything down. Okay. So I, I guess... I guess we're, we want to talk to you a little bit about Dive Right. Um, can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about how, how it came to be? 1984, Mark Leonard and I started Dive Right um, during one of the, a big flood. We had a big flood here in Florida, so we started Dive Right. Uh, before that, I was actually managing Branford Dive Center, where I worked with Wes. I worked with Wes there, and then Wes went on over to Jenny Springs to manage it. I stayed at Branford to manage it. And... There was a big need for gear. I mean, cavern diving, basic cave diving was all that was starting. But, you know, when standards say you need a reel, but where do you get it? There wasn't anybody, there wasn't a company that, that made reels. Uh, nobody did. Um, as manager, I would uh, buy stuff all the time. Right. Uh, you know, a guy, would, a cave diver would come in and he would put this nice fancy reel on this counter and go, Laura, what do you think of this? I'd look at it, and, man, this, this thing, good action to it. This thing spins really good. Yeah, I made that. Like, How many did you make? I made about eight of them. Bring them in. Let's do some horse trading. Mm-hmm. So I was buying gear from cave divers who were making stuff in their basement and everything. But there was never a steady supply, especially mm-hmm. as more and more people started taking classes. So Dive Right was born out of a need to uh, supply uh, the cave divers in the area. Uh, for all these classes because they were starting up. No, there was no other company making reels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started with reels and then uh, canister lights, then hoses and hardware. So they just weren't being made. Uh, we uh, took Greg Flanagan's backplate and made it uh, a standard. Where did the where did the name come from? Dive Fright. <laughs> Mark Leonard had a dive shop up in Speedway, Indiana. And when they closed and he moved to Florida, he wanted to keep that name. So that's where Dive Right came okay. from. <laughs> that's easy. <laughs> what was the, what's the philosophy of Dive Right? Uh, well, you know, our, our motto is equipment for serious divers. Okay. You know, uh, we don't make anything that we won't dive ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that's just, that's just the way we think. You know, pre-breathers, everything. Uh, 
In the early days, Mal, we were doing, when we first started with rebreathers, you know, I'd be talking to Kevin Jurgensen and a few others, and it'd be like, well, uh, if, I, if I won't let Jared dive it, then I won't sell it. Hmm. And at the time, well, Jared, he was the youngest uh, rebreather diver ever trained. He, he got his card at, uh, I think, 16, but he did all of his training at 14. Wow. And, uh, yeah, he was, wow. yeah, he, uh, he's got editing credits in uh, the second edition of Mastering Rebreathers. He had to read <laughs> that book. And he corresponded with Jeff because Jeff's a good buddy. Jeff called me and he's like, I can't believe Jared actually read the book. And I said, well, I told him he had to if he wanted to get, you know, learn how to dive a rebreather. <laughs> so, um, so Jared, he, uh, he, he built an oxygen rebreather for his uh, um, sixth grade science project and uh, took it to the little river and tested it. And <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so, you know, so the philosophy has been, you know, if, if I won't dive it, you know, won't sell and if I won't let you know my family dive it because we all dive Leanne my wife Jared so if I won't let them get in the water then I'm not selling it hmm. period that's pretty you gotta solid. be confident enough that I'll let my I'll, I'm, I'm comfortable with my family diving it and and where do you see the company going in the future what's what do, what's in um, wow you know I, I'm, I'm, it's hard to say I mean we're into rebreathers we've got two rebreathers out now with the uh, the chest mount rebreather has just it's something that has, uh, I, I built it as a toy. I built it as something that I wanted to do because I am getting old, you know, mm-hmm. an easier way to dive. Uh, I was looking for something that, well, like going back in Cal, you got those restrictions to go through and yeah. all of that. Well, now there's, now there's a back mount entrance, but either way to get back there because of the flow takes a lot of bottles. I wanted a rebreather that I could, you know, push take in and still only dive with a set of side mount tanks. And uh, so I worked, I've worked on it for about three years. And when I finally got it to a point where it could, could be out there, I still didn't really think it was going to take off that well, mm-hmm. but it's gained a lot of popularity because of its ability to be easily transported and to be able to interface with back mount and uh, side mount tanks. And we still have a back mount that, that's very popular as well. Yeah, but then regulators and and everything we're 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 playing around now with some you know some new lighting systems that I think are going to really you know take everybody by surprise with the innovation that we're doing with that, uh, mm-hmm. and hopefully we'll be ready to launch that early next year. Mm-hmm. And we're doing some new innovations on our rebreather and all that, so we're constantly working on things. But you know, big new ideas. You know, I'm I, I don't. I don't have any big new ideas yet. I mean, you know, yeah. I haven't, I haven't figured out how to make the, the lungs so you don't need any tanks at all. Yet. That's right. But <laughs> we're waiting for. <laughs> yeah, me, too. me too. You know, it's like make the stuff lighter. <laughs> yeah. I have a random kind of question here. Sitting in my 3d printing workshop now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like, seems to me like everybody's got a 3d printer. Everybody's got yeah. a CNC machine. Everybody's mm-hmm. got all these tools at their hands. Yeah. Uh, is, do you find the marketplace or the just everything kind of more flooded these days and it's harder to differentiate or how um, to, you know, or, or I don't know, harder to innovate because everybody's kind of like sharing stuff. And I don't know. How do you, how do you feel no, about I'm, it's actually, actually, you know, for me, it, that, um, I don't have a problem with it. I actually enjoy seeing some of it, mm-hmm. uh, because 
you know, where like 3D printing things, th- those are nice to do. We, we use, we've got three 3D printers at the office, three, mm-hmm. three 3Ds, a couple of lasers. And whenever we have a, a new product idea, uh, even if it's just a small widget or whatever, we'll 3D mm-hmm. print it to check right. it for ergonomics fit. We've even gone so far as to 3D print a whole light to make sure all the electronics fit in it just properly oh, and then cool. make sure it was going to be right in the hand and everything. Uh, we were even able to uh, 3D print um, our DSV uh, for our rebreather. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, to do a prototype on a rebreather before you take it for uh, testing, for work and breathing testing, no, you're going to spend about five grand to have something like that done mm-hmm. uh, because of all the setup time on the CNC to do it. And we were able to, to build it to the point of uh, being able to print it and then put it on the lathe for a little bit of sanding mm-hmm. to get it to where it would, everything would seal so we could do worker breathing testing on it. So we could go right from 3D printing to production. Wow. After we, because we were able to test, actually do the, the mm-hmm. breathing testing on the 3D printed model. So that kind of stuff is pretty exciting with what it can allow us to do. But people doing it on their own, they'll never be able to to, to print something that can be um, you know mass produced, yeah, or or to be produced in a way that it can be uh, sold to anybody. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, yeah. yeah. I've totally. seen some of the yeah soft line things where people can uh, you know those 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 are easy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's cool. I appreciate that. Yeah. I just. So, uh, Lamar, I did want to uh, throw out there just as a local connection um, and more a point in in just a statement than anything else, but kind of speaks to the way that you've been speaking to us, how generous you've been with your time and even for just coming on to the show. But uh, we had a random local connection here with you. I'm not sure if you'd remember, Uh but about uh, 10 years ago, our friend uh, Krista and her friend Trisha had uh, showed up to dive right, just random Canadian kids unannounced. Ah, okay. And okay. Uh, Jared, I guess, just kind of dragged them in and gave them a tour of the mm-hmm. whole facility. Yeah. And then I think yeah. you later took them out. You guys took them out <laughs> at Little River Diving. Little and, River, yeah, yeah, I remember that, yeah. And so she yeah. she still says that that sticks with her. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things where I was like, wow, that's, that's really cool that, uh, you know, you do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to kind of make the connection for you there because it seems like your, oh. your reputation and hospitality precedes you yeah. even in Canada. So, <laughs> well, thanks. I mean, and I mean, for us, it's like, you know, for me, it's, it's all about, you know, we live here. So I love sharing the experience with people. Yeah. Um, yeah. We don't have, we don't have to get on a boat travel anywhere. It's like, well, let's meet you at the park. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I got to ask, uh, where can people follow you online, Lamar? Are you active on any social media? And obviously um, like the dive not, right as not well. Not really. Yeah. No? Just dive right. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I'll post every now and then, but I, I'm not active. I don't actively post mm-hmm. or anything. I, I do. I do browse and read a lot, you know, and <laughs> yeah. but I guess because I read a lot, I don't post because I'd probably say something I shouldn't say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you there. I don't post a whole lot. Anyway. <laughs> that, that's a good policy. Yeah. 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 My, my son's, you know, told me to stay off of social media. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So Lamar, what, what keeps you diving? I just, I just enjoy it. I mean, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, you know, for me, there's, there's not a cave around here that I can't go into 
that I don't remember laying a little piece of line in somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, all of them. You know, Peacock, where I didn't explore any of Peacock proper, I explored a good section of P3. You know, and then putting in all the gold line in all the caves around here, you know, I kind of look at them and to me it's kind of like a, a maintenance thing. I'll go in and look at them and see how they're holding up and see if anything needs to be done to them to, uh, to clean them up a little bit more. But I, I swim every one of them just remembering you know, my first dive in there and, and uh, things like that. Hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I, still en- I still enjoy it quite a bit. I don't get bored with it at all. Wow. That's a beautiful answer. Yeah. Mm. That's really great. And Lamar, you have held on. Um, this is two episodes worth of content. And you stuck with us and just, man, what an amazing set of interviews and uh, such, such a great uh, story. And man, your, your recall for events that happened uh, years ago is better than my recall for breakfast yesterday. I just uh, really appreciate you sharing all that. And uh, it's just been incredible. It's been a really incredible time. And I want to thank you for coming on. Oh, well, like I said, I, I appreciate you having me here. And, you know, like I said, uh, we've got some more things coming out. So if you want to reach out to me again, after you see a new th- few things pop on our, pop up on our website, let me know. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, we'll be yeah, sure to sure. have you on again in the future, Lamar. Yeah. This episode of Dive In The Podcast is brought to you by Torpedo Rays Scuba. You can find them online at torpedorays.com. They've been teaching Canada how to dive for 25 years and are a proud sponsor of this podcast. If you're in Atlantic Canada and want to take a course or see the shop, stop in and see us in Dartmouth and check out the huge selection of scuba, apnea, surf gear, and much more. Dive tours are available for locals and visitors to experience all that our ocean playground has to offer. TorpedoRays.com has a vast selection of dive gear at unbeatable prices with free shipping available in Canada and quick shipping throughout North America. So visit TorpedoRays.com or stop in the shop and you might even see one of us there. Well, some mind-blowing moments there for sure. I want to thank Lamar for for sitting down with us for like, I don't know, nearly two hours of interview time. That was, uh, was super awesome and it was a fun chat with him. He was just such a fantastic guy. We really thank him again for joining us and uh, yeah, and just sharing all that. And like Nick said before the show, just, uh, you know, neat to have all that stuff, uh, all that information. Yeah, it's awesome. So anyway, before I go on and on uh, talking about Lamar Moore, as we've talked to him for the last hour, uh, I'd like to talk to Amit for a while and hear what you have to say on this week's Deco Stop. So I was reading this uh, just, well, last night, actually, and mm. was trying to figure out how I can how I can discuss this on Deco Stop. But I was trying to figure out what would be a, a neat way to chat about this because it ties into the idea of cave diving and then safety and security and, and some of the things that we might encounter uh, in sometimes adverse conditions. And, you know, whether we like it or not, if you start doing aggressive diving um, or even non-aggressive diving and you just happen to be, uh, there's a number of factors that come together, you could find yourself bent. And often we're sitting around going like, well, I have these feelings. I'm not sure. Am I bent? Am I not bent? And I say often, it's not like I've gotten through this myself. But uh, if you are in that situation, one of the things that does come through uh, as being a way to positively look at that and try to determine what your situation is, is the five-minute neurological exam. 
And so this suggests that if you're ever in a situation where you think that you have been bent, you can kind of pull this exam off in about five minutes and get a rough baseline on whether or not uh, you think the person is bent and kind of should they go for further treatment. Now, it, it's a pretty, it's, it takes five minutes, but it's a relatively in-depth uh, exam. And what I don't want to do is try to present this to people over a podcast and then somehow they feel like they could walk away and now go and perform a neurological <laughs> exam. Because uh, I think that would be actually doing a disservice to, you know, to the listeners. And as well, it'd be kind of irresponsible from my standpoint, uh, claiming that I would have some expertise to be able to do so. Uh, what I did want to cover was the idea that it, of of kind of what is involved in this, uh, just from a general standpoint, and give you guys a reference point to go back and look at, so that you can kind of look this up and get some more experience on your own. So, generally, what people are looking for here, there are nine components of the neurological exam, and so they kind of encompass different factors that obviously uh, allow us to be able to test whether or not a person is having issues. So it starts off with orientation and then people look at like, you know, your awareness. So your spatial awareness, do you know who you are and that sort of thing. Uh, it goes on to looking at like your eyes, because aside from being the windows to your soul, uh, <laughs> they do give us a lot of information about whether or not uh, a person is experiencing any neurological damage and or even if it's partially so. Uh, you know, are they in a position where the eyes will give it away? And that you can test by doing, you know, certain things by like looking at tracking of the eyes as well as potentially pupillary dilation and what have you. Uh, similar to if you're doing a um, uh, look at strokes, you're in a position where you can look at a person's face to try and determine if they're in a position where both sides of their face are equal. Uh, and then we can look at things like their hearing, you know, is their hearing impaired at all? Uh, there's a request for you to look at like a swallowing reflex in that whether or not the diver can swallow and if visible, is there Adam, Adam's apple moving up and down, meaning that there's a link between the, uh, the, I guess the request for you to do a thing, the action and the movements that your body are taking to be able to perform that. Uh, they also look at the tongue, muscle strength and sensory perception, as well as balance and coordination. So, I mean, you know, when you look at this, you would think like, wow, that's a lot of stuff to do, but really it's just nine steps. And if you were to practice this as part of your, you know, diving first aid and safety procedures, it gives you a good basis to actually get into the habit of assessing what might be going on with your fellow divers or, you know, I mean, you can't really do it on yourself, uh, but mm -hmm. hopefully if you guys are doing it as a team, then you're out in a position where the guys can actually uh, reference this. So. Uh, I did say I wouldn't cover it in detail, and that's on purpose. Uh, what I will say is, if at all possible, try to find a, you know an instructor who is really kind of talented in this area and or specializes in in dive first aid. Uh, otherwise, like as always, the the holy Bible for decompression diving, you can find it referenced in Deco Di for Divers by uh, Mark Powell, uh, and it shows up in that regard uh, in around uh, page seventy nine through to 80, uh, which gives us a good kind of like overview of what we should be looking for and kind of the questions that we should be asking. So that in mind, have a look at that chapter three, go find an instructor and get some actual practical examples uh, and experience in terms of doing this. And I think overall, it'll make us all safer deco divers. That's that's actually really interesting because uh, if you recall when we had uh, Dr. Juan Valdivia Valdivia on back in episode fifty four, 
Um, he actually developed something very similar for uh, post-hypoxic events in, in freediving and has a five-minute neurological exam, which is actually, in a lot of respects, very similar to the DCS one. Uh, and mm-hmm. actually in conjunction with Patty, it's a freediving instructor specialty um, that, that uh, you can take and... and um, I actually did it. I still haven't submitted the paperwork for it, but, um, <laughs> yeah, so definitely, definitely one of those things that if you are venturing in, in the, you know, into tech diving or, you know, deeper free diving type of thing, uh, you know, you, as your diving progresses, your knowledge of the first aid to, to sort of deal with the higher risk activities and consequences should kind of keep up with, with those activities. I just like that, uh, you know, we're making divers more informed and, you know, we're kind of getting in depth with all these kind of things as they're happening and how to check for that. You know, it's, we're just as a, as a collective group, divers, scuba free, whatever divers, um, you know, just man, the, the amount of knowledge that we're, we're getting imparted upon us is just, there's so much out there and so much to learn. Uh, yeah, it's cool. Super cool stuff. And, uh, yeah. Uh, Wani's stuff is cool. I was just looking at that because I was, uh, was like, wait a minute, isn't this a lot like the freediving one that he had? <laughs> and uh, yeah, his acronym mouth bill CO2 and oh, uh, yeah, yeah. the steps yeah. there. Yeah, so it's very cool. Thanks, Mitt. That was neat. Um, I didn't realize there was a scuba one, I guess. So must have somehow missed that and uh, good to know. Awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, don't thank me. Uh, I thank the guys who came up with it, really. And like All I said, right. I was cool. purposeful and not trying to uh, to really throw that out there in a mm-hmm. way that would try to give too much detail. I think it is a thing that uh, people should try to get some practical hands-on experience with and maybe some help, right? Because I think if you're assessing some of those things, uh, it's helpful to have a person who understands it to explain to you what exactly you're looking for as you kind of learn that process. And uh, yeah, good reference point, but not something I think we should be teaching over the podcast zone. <laughs> so Definitely. Yeah, very cool. All right, cool. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. I want to thank Lamar Hires again for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with him, and I can't wait till we get to have him on the podcast for a third time. Uh, I also want to thank Nick and Amit for, well, you know, uh, <laughs> I think I made this joke last time. Amit really, uh, really did a ton of work uh, getting that interview together and doing a ton of research. So, Amit, thank you for all you do. Ah, well, you know what? I love dorking out and I like showing up to chat with people. (laughs) Dorking out and showing up with chat and uh, drinking some beer. And that's what we do here. Uh, (laughs) Nick, thank you as well. I know you also put in a ton of legwork. Great. Yeah, my fingerprint on this one is uh, is pretty small. But, you know, the whole podcast is a a team effort and uh, everybody pitches in when they can, especially in these post-COVID times when we're all getting busy. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, it's a crazy life we lead right now. Um, and I'm required, apparently, by script to thank you guys every week, so I try to come up with new ways of thanking you, and uh, you just go, oh, it's a team effort, don't thank me. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Maybe well, we should just write that I'd, out I'd, of the script, right? Like, we just be like, all right, <laughs> cheers, guys, we'll see you next week. <laughs> maybe, mm-hmm. maybe we should just post about it on Instagram, because otherwise it doesn't exist, right? Right. Ooh, oh, I, I don't have Instagram, so uh, I, I guess it doesn't there. exist. I, I don't exist. Then I guess I'm having an existential crisis. Do I yeah. exist or do I not do exist? I, Am I you real? Instagram, therefore you are. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> I have problems to deal with now. Uh, I'm going to seek therapy on this. Yep. Uh, okay, no, I'm not. Speaking but. to somebody is okay. <laughs> 
All right. Well, don't forget, you can support this podcast on patreon.com slash dive in pod and get some fun rewards for doing so. You can visit our website, diveinpod.com for all the links you need, episodes, merch, and so much more. On social media, you can follow me at IDiveOK. April is at April Weikert. I'm at Nicholas Winkler Photography. Next week, we speak to Samantha Schwan. Samantha is an international award-winning underwater photographer whose work concentrates on ecologically unique areas of the ocean. This episode of Dive in the Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, Torpedo Ray Scuba. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. Reviews are one of the best ways to help others find the podcast. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Dear God. We Was that the voice this. of your... <laughs> it's an ancestor or something you're channeling here? <laughs> I just have to come up with a new every time. It's getting really difficult. <laughs> oh, Was your great-great-grandfather the Swedish chef? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs>